List of regions of lost darkness. List of known supermassive black holes. List of subduction zones. List of former futures exchanges. For the final episode of our Venice special, we'd like to take you to the Pavilion of New Zealand. It is housed in the Palazzina Canonica, right by the bank of the Canale Grande. However, the work by the artist Dane Mitchell is not immediately visible. The corridors and staircases of the Neo-Renaissance Palace, built in 1911, are empty, save for the occasional piece of furniture. At the heart of the building, there's the library, whose walls are lined with dark wooden bookshelves. They too are empty. Only in the middle of the well-lit room is a rack with a printer on top which spews out endless paper, slowly filling the space. This is only one part of the work post-hoc by Dane Mitchell who represents New Zealand this year. The artist in his early 40s describes its artwork as one big language object, which is linked to the Palazzina and three other spots in the city. Mitchell has been active as an artist since 1999 and in the past decade he has had more than 30 solo shows. His work is concerned with disappearance and the rift between objects and memory, and it is aptly characterized as intangible. When we attended the opening party of the pavilion and heard the artist speak about his work, we knew we had to interview him for Unraveled. So we sat down the following day and let him take us through the preparation process and the setup of his work, which is not just an enumeration of things lost, but it also speaks about the fleetingness of the world around us. Yeah, the pavilion, um, so it's the New Zealand National Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. And uh, it's a it's a it's a, an exhibition, a solo exhibition by me. It's new work. Uh, it's titled Post Hoc, and the central element of um, of the exhibition is a very very large invisible form. It is an it is a language object. In fact, it is a list. It is a giant list uh, that I've made with a couple of researchers helping me a little bit, but it is predominantly produced by me. And it is a list uh, of names, a list of names of things that have disappeared, that have vanished, that have become obsolete, that are withdrawn, that are, that are forces of absence. And so this language object is, is, is three million words long. And it was my intention for it to be thought about as an object in the sense that it's, I really wanted to think about it as a language object in that the, when the exhibition starts, the reading of these names begins. And then when the exhibition stops, the reading ends. And so that it is this kind of colossal object whereby at from 10 o'clock every morning until 6 at night when the exhibition closes, 8 hours a day, that list of names is read and it does not repeat. So that's been how many, how many names did you put together, did you compile? Well, it, I mean, it's 3 million words. In terms of the, the number of names, I don't actually have that information ready to hand, but the utterance that occurs, the reading that occurs, that speech act, it's, a, it's somewhere between 18,000 and 22,000. 
2,000 words a day that are read. So some of those, I mean, so in terms of how many names, it's quite difficult to say because, for example, the list of dinosaurs has a certain number. But other things like the list of um, abandoned oil platforms uh, are defined by way of their longitudinal latitudinal uh, position and by their, um, you know, the company that owns them. So the naming is slightly different each time. Um, but what I was really interested in, not, uh, in doing was not just thinking about this language object uh, as, an, as a kind of a, as a form, but to, to think about um, the act of speaking and, uh, and to think about the uh, speech act as a producer of realities. You know, that by saying something, we make it so. And so by uttering these names, my hope was that much like when we name the dead when we call out the names of people's people lost in the war for example that we might name these gone and vanished and disappeared and obsolete and withdrawn objects entities non-human species these technologies we might name them and call them back up momentarily sort of conjure them back and now is it possibly like to hear them like yeah so the yeah so what i've described is basically the central element but it is expressed or let's say experienced across several several um different um uh, physical kind of outcomes uh, the, the, the heart or the brain of the, of the project is an object that sits in this very raw space and it's a galvanized steel wedge. It looks a bit like a, I don't know, like a giant, uh, gi a giant kind of uh, doorstop uh, or something. But it's, a, it's, a ch it's called a anech uh, tapered anechoic chamber. It's an anechoic chamber it's in that it's echo-free. It's, it's used by engineers uh, to test fields of transmission. So inside this object, the voice is read, but we can't access it, we can't hear it. We can stare into the box, which is a bit like staring into this kind of, kind of blue cave. It's, it's in the internal spaces covered in these acoustic wedges. And inside that space, there is a, a speaker and a microphone. And this for me was just a very simple way to imagine um, something speaking and something listening. Something very beautiful happens inside that box, and this is not a metaphor, this is an actual thing that that box does by way of its, um, its functionality, is that whatever is transmitted inside that box vanishes over an infinite horizon and never comes back or bounces off anything. It, it, a transmission moves away from the source and never hits anything. So in, in, a, in a sense, that box has an infinite space of transmission. I'm really interested in transmissions and th that extends across the exhibition. The other element, uh, there are three physical elements. There's that chamber where the voice is, is uttered. There are these, uh, these very peculiar trees that um, populate the garden of the pavilion. There are three at the pavilion and there are further four across Venice. There's one at the hospital one at the School of Architecture, or sorry, the University of Architecture, one at St. Elena Park. Uh, amazingly, it's called the Park of Remembrance, and also at uh, the Bacini Vaporetto Stop in North Arsenale. They are not real trees. They, are, they come from China, from Guangzhou, uh, which is a kind of factory of the world. It's, we're probably sitting on seats right now that were made in Guangzhou, and if we're not, there's certainly an object nearby that was. Um, and... The factory that makes these fake technological poor copies of nature, they make these trees uh, for the telecommunications industry. About 25 years ago, companies, you know, cell, cell phone companies, were starting to look for ways to camouflage and hide their infrastructure. 
Because in order for us to all experience and use this um, you know, phone network to which we're all so tethered and reliant and that permeates everything, we've, it's dependent on a very kind of visible uh, infrastructure. We experience the kind of invisible network that connects us all, but it's held up by all this very physical stuff. And so one thing that needs to occur for a, for a, for a, um, a network to, of that nature to function is that it needs to be held up high on our landscape. And so the, these companies started to devise ways to hide this technology. And one of these ways was to produce fake trees. And so I worked with a factory that produced these to make these seven stealth cell towers, as they're called, or as they're sometimes rather affectionately known as Frankenpines. So these Frankenpines um, are literal transmitters in my project. So from that chamber, the lists are generated, they are sent over that infinite horizon inside the box, and then they are also broadcast or transmitted, sent out to each tree, which contains the list in their entirety. And they transmit uh, in a way off of themselves, they emit a signal, and you can join the network by way of your phone. You just select the network like you would a Wi-Fi hotspot. And when you do that, you come offline and you're in a one-to-one -one relationship with this techno tree. You are connected to the technological tree and you can listen to any one of these lists. List of abandoned hamlets and parishes. List of haunted locations. List of dam failures. List of chimeras. And how did you choose those space to put those trees? Are they site specific? Yeah. Uh, in relation to this list? Yeah, they, they, they certainly are. I mean, Venice is a complicated place to, 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 to do uh, such things. But I um, was really, really uh, sure about uh, a couple of those locations and, and fought very hard to make sure they happened. And they do connect in very meaningful ways for me. The hospital in particular, the hospital, you know, that is a site of, um, of mortality. It's a, it's a place of, um, of birth and of death. It's also a place of the microbial and the viral and, um, and the invisible. So I really love this idea of having a tree at the hospital. It's also a kind of a working part of a city. And, I, and, and these trees are mistaken for infrastructure in those locations. They don't necessarily read as art objects. So thinking about parts of the city that are quite lived in was really interesting to me. So the hospital was really important. Um, it's in a kind of an enclosed garden in the hospital that is open to the public and it's kind of right next to the psychiatric ward and there are like these cats roaming around the garden. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing place. Yeah, that was an important one. The University of Architecture was also one that I really wanted to secure and I'm very happy that we could because I think it's really interesting to think about a university as a place for learning, as a place for the accruement of knowledge and also for, um, you know, for um, speculative thinking and also to think about our built environment. It's a school of architecture and these trees are a kind of hybridized object that is something uh, that tries to blend into a natural environment but is actually part of our built environment so it has a kind of complicated relationship with buildings or with built spaces. That was uh, as well like uh, one of my questions. I was wondering why you were highlighting this fakeness of yeah. those trees. Are you interested to a kind of artificial nature? Yeah, I, th I think they are really um, 
problematic objects. They are um, antagonistic uh, objects. They are aesthetically antagonistic, and they are um, environmentally antagonistic. They, I mean, I think it was really important to me this project that all of the materials, all of the forms, are pre-existing things. That they are things that we as a species produce. And it is deeply troubling, deeply beautiful, deeply weird that we do this. We make these fake trees that stand in for nature, that are at, at, the, at, the, at the expense of nature. So we replace nature with a surrogate that is damaging to it. So yeah, I, I think also um, these trees, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying the work does all of this, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have around the work. And, and they are pine, and that was a very deliberate um, decision. I think most of our experiences of nature are technological. When we see nature, it is, generally speaking, it is framed by us. We go to national parks to see nature in some kind of imagined natural state. But in fact, that is a, that is a technological space. That is a managed environment. In New Zealand in particular, you know, we are very proud of our, our native and natural environment. And yet, I think we also need to be honest that our parklands are technological spaces. There are, they are mapped, they are, there are traps, we eradicate um, invasive species, we prioritize a certain moment in time where nature was untouched by a kind of colonial, its colonial history. So all of these things make our relationship very kind of really complex. And the pine tree is a tree that we in New Zealand have a very peculiar relationship to. We grow pine faster seven times faster than anywhere else and we grow a lot of pine trees because it's capital it's treated as an industrial form so already pine trees are not nature and very interestingly pine in new zealand although encouraged to grow in vast numbers for capital and wealth accruement pine is an invasive species if a pine leaves the area in which it grows it is called a wilding and it is an invasive species and it must be killed. So for example, when I go to a, a piece of land that my family have owned for a very long time, it's a beautiful piece of native forest, uh, we would call it bush. So I'm constantly with a chainsaw killing pine trees. So it's a very peculiar relationship with a piece of nature. I see the pine tree already as a kind of technology. And so my, my techno trees are a kind of, they're just, a, it's really dialed up. They're a really kind of fake fake. As well where we speak about the sixth extinction yeah and in the sixth extinction we plan kind of one million species called the disappearance of one million species mm. how far this relation as well with the environment was mm. important important in your work let's say it wasn't central to my thinking when I devised the project and when I was making the project but I was very very interested in the project touching on or impinging on all kinds of topical conversations. I think it's really interesting when an artwork can be somewhat um, agile enough to kind of dance around an issue or for example kind of squint at issues, kind of look sideways at things. And I was certainly thinking about these um, really important uh, uh, notions in relationship to 
the vast, vast loss of species. I mean, of course, that's that. There's there are a lot of very self-evident lists on the the list of lists, as I call it, that point to extinction and goneness in relationship to non-human species. And you know, being from New Zealand, from Aotearoa, New Zealand, I um, I was very aware of our over-representation in many of those lists. So the list of uh, extinct birds. I mean, we uh, we are overrepresented in that list because islands, you know, they are very fragile ecologies. I mean, I think the title of the exhibition points to that a little bit. The title of the exhibition is Post Hoc, which translates to After This. It's Latin, and Latin actually is on the list of uh, extinct languages. It's also a language that's used for naming, you know, this Western epistemological kind of framework of encyclopedic kind of thinking is such that we look to categorize the world to build a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the world and we believe in a way there's, there's a sort of sense of that we can somehow contain the world through knowledge so it's a language of naming of flora and fauna and so i was thinking about the fact that we live in a moment of afterness we live after all of these lists of these things but we also live in a moment of being after climate change or after mass extinction so there was a kind of correlative um, connection. There's a connection I wanted to make. The title also comes uh, from a longer phrase, post hoc ergo propter hoc, which translates to after this, therefore because this. And it's a phrase that tells us that we need to, we should be cautious, that we should be careful to assume causal links between events. So just because something happened, just because something happens, we shouldn't, and something, we should not assume that an event that happened before it is, is somehow connected to it. And for me, this was a way to sort of try to untether the work from being a moral lesson, because the work is not a moral lesson. I really am not trying to say that we are responsible for all of this loss, because there are things on that list that we should be glad are gone. There are um, cured diseases. I mean, that was a. Re I worked for a year and a half, uh, really, really intensely on that list. Um, it's very homemade. I mean, it's very handmade. It's not an algorithm that goes out and kind of mines for data. It's very much authored by me. I started with, you know, maybe 25. I'm kind of guessing here, but maybe I started with like 25 ideas for the lists because I've always been interested in, I have in my work been exploring unseen forces and things that sit on the edge of visibility and thinking about the unseen as a kind of seething presence in our world and our experiences and in our knowledge systems. And so I was thinking about all of this invisible and gone stuff that's right in front of us. And so I was, my list began with things like extinct languages, former nations, that's why I needed to do most of them myself. I, I, I gathered about 70% of the data on the lists myself. And it was a case that I needed to do that because I was really just, new categories were kind of being developed as I was researching, things would come up. And that was an incredibly exciting part of the project for me. And, um, and then others, I had, I had some help from third parties. So an, an environmental group named End Coal were really helpful. I was searching really, really for a long time for a list uh, um, of abandoned oil platforms. You know, all of these, these rusting oil platforms that sit out in our ocean. There are over 40,000 of them. Art Loss Register is a company in the UK and they were very generous 
in um, giving me a huge database of missing artworks, which reads for um, seven hours 40 a day for eight days. So it's an incredibly long list. I found an enthusiast of lighthouses who gave me a list of abandoned lighthouses. There were some paleontological organizations that were very helpful. out loud yeah her name is Amy um, she, she is not a person but she has a name much like the trees which are surrogates for nature Amy is a surrogate for us she is an AI voice she is a text-to-speech uh, technology again like the trees and the chamber she is a ready-to-hand material she is an existing product she has a, a kind of very authoritative but gentle English accent and um, you know she's very good at pronouncing Latin, which is a, a you know which is a language that appears uh, on these lists of, of certainly of extinct uh, species. So yeah, she's um, she's she must be very exhausted, a tired digital force. Uh, but never exhausted as well. Uh, but never ex but ex inexhaustible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like how how far uh, this project is specific to New Zealand? Would yes, you say? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, I am from Aotearoa, New Zealand. That is my home. New Zealand is reflected in those lists in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's a subjective list, as I said. So I'm in those lists in all kinds of ways too. My concerns, my interests, my thinking, I'm, you know, I'm all over that. The work embraces the impossibility of the task, so it is very much a kind of poetic force. There is the full New Zealand paleontological record read. And fossils were something I was really interested in thinking about for this list in the way that they are kind of absences. You know, the fossil is a sort of a thing that's not the thing. I, I don't know, it's a complicated kind of absence. And, and so the full New Zealand paleontological record is read. There's also um, a list of objects of lost provenance. And those are mainly Taonga Māori and, uh, from the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa. And so uh, Te Papa, who are a partner organization, partner museum for the presentation of this project, were very generous in uh, giving me the names of over, uh, I think it's over 8,000 uh, objects. Where there's, a, where there's a, missing, a missing link for an object, that object is named and listed. So New Zealand is, yeah, is a, is a present, has a strong presence in the list. But how do you feel about this uh, question of nationality mm. that Venice, in particular, as Biennial, like, give this importance yeah. to nations. Yeah, there's something very comical and beautiful about it too. I, I, I mean, I kind of like it. I mean, what I do like hearing people say is, um, you know, like, I'm going to France, or, you know, I'm, I'm off to Portugal, or, you know, people talk specifically about a nation when they go to see an exhibition. It's, it's pretty funny. I mean, I, the trees, when I was thinking about this project and my, my, my uh, cell tower uh, pines that I've inserted across the city, I, w I was really also, I mentioned that I was thinking about the list, but another thing I was thinking about was, you know, this, this way that we've, you know, that, that nature could be thought about as a kind of technology. And I was thinking about the Giardini, that it's a park, it's a kind of produced form of nature. And the Giardini is a kind of geopolitical map and it's a geopolitical map of a very particular moment in history. We, New Zealand is not present in that geopolitical map. We are vanished from that map. So it's a very funny kind of, to me, it's a very strange place. And I was thinking about 
what might a, a pavilion, a New Zealand pavilion, look like in the Giardini? And it might be a pine tree, a fake pine tree inserted into the garden, and that might be a way in, you know? But um, yeah, it's a, it's a very peculiar geopolitical map with, you know, this kind of fascist bit of architecture from Germany, and, you know, you've got the United States and Israel kind of tucked into, it, you know, kind of shoulder to shoulder down around the corner there and you know the British at the top of the hill with the French nearby so it's a very strange affair you know I can't deny that I'm not incredibly honored to get to do this like this is an amazing amazing thing to get to do if it means representing my country well you know that's a peculiar uh, thing to tr try and do I don't think anybody can represent um, a, a complexity that is a nation um, and maybe the best way to do that is just to kind of have interesting conversations and kind of, you know, be present and willing to, um, to produce work and have people uh, think on it. Thanks for listening to the show. This was Unraveled, the Advec podcast. The show is hosted by Bernard Viena, Philippe Henda, and Nina Kettiger, myself. It is produced by Advec. Our theme song and jingle were produced by artist and musician Laura Katsawan. As we're starting new with the podcast, please send comments and suggestions to unraveled at art-verc.ch. Verc is written W-E-R-K. You can find all images of the works and informations discussed in this episode on our page www.r-verc.ch. If you would like to advertise or sponsor one episode, please write at contact at r-verc.ch. <laughs> <laughs>